Hi, this is Pete and Tim, and it's record time. We often listen to music in a disconnected stream of different songs. The radio, playlists on shuffle, almost always on the go. Music barely ever gets our full attention, but it does on record time where we dive deep into some of the best albums ever recorded. Let's give a little time and our full mind over to the Rolling Stones and the greatest rock and roll album of all time, Exile on Main Street. What? <laughs> and for those who like a liquid accompaniment to their active listening, we've paired this record with a fine French Bordeaux, and you can too. Wow, coming out of the gate. <laughs> let's yeah, let's not set the set the stakes too high. <laughs> well, we saved this for a season ender for a lot of different reasons. Yeah, we did. We, it was gonna be our season opener. Uh, it was originally the first thing we thought of, and, yeah. and often when I'm talking to people about this show, they ask if we're gonna do this album. Um, and uh, yeah, I feel like it had to be done season one. I'm very glad we saved it for the end. I think it's a perfect closer. I, for I, a season. I agree. Um, yeah. We should uh, touch briefly before we dive in uh, to whether or not Exile on Main Street is the greatest rock and roll <laughs> album of all time uh, to the various ways that you can get in touch with us. Yes. Uh, we are on Twitter at Record Time Pod. You can get us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Record Time Podcast. And of course, we're fighting back all the calls that we're receiving <laughs> at 937 Pete Tim. That makes my heart sing every time we say the phone number because it's still. I just wish somebody would use it. <laughs> We're here. We're real. So, what's the greatest rock album of all time? Come on, bring it. Great, great idea. There's our first question for our uh, listeners. What is the greatest rock and roll album of all time? Is it Exile on Main Street? We're going to explore that. If you've got other ideas, uh, let us know at 937 Pete Tim. Yeah, and at the end of the episode, we'll have another. Uh, Solicitation. That's true. Question number two is going to be coming right up. So cliffhanger. Yeah, stay. Hang, we'll hang through us. We'll see who our real listeners for that. <laughs> <laughs> if you're still there, wow, thank you. But anyway, thanks for being here and thanks for listening and and uh, kicking it with Exile on Main Street with us. Yeah. Um, I n I don't even know if this is the best Stones album. Right. Well, uh, I agree. It's not. Yeah. And I don't think it's the best. Um, I don't think it's the highest quality. I don't think it's the most impactful. I don't think it has the best songs, but I think it might be the greatest rock and roll album of all time anyway. Whoa. I think it would at least be the best expression of what the Rolling Stones do. Strong agreement for me like, on that. Yeah. Specific yes. to what, what they bring to the table, what their certain magic is, this album has all of it. Yeah. This is the most right they've ever been, which is staggering. Yeah. Considering what we know about the circumstances <laughs> under which the album was recorded, which is a theme that my notes will return to yeah. time and time again as we move through this record. So released in 1972, yes. but recorded over four years in at least three different studios. Right. In three different countries. Right. Uh much of the some songs started at Mick Jagger's house in England, 
during the recording of um, you know their previous album, yep. which of course I'm brain farting right now, and I think is Sticky Fingers. Uh, Sticky Fingers, yes, is the immediate prior, yeah. but I think a lot of this goes back even prior to that. Oh, to Let It Bleed? Uh, I think maybe a couple, at least of the songs were written that, that far back. Right. Um, but yes, some of this recording, because that was part of the legal trouble. And yeah, the fucking Alan and... Klein. Um, and then some of it, or a bulk of it, in Keith's rented villa right. in the south of France in the basement. Yes. Because <laughs> they were tax exiles yeah. from England. You know, whatever, celebrated or not. That yeah, I mean, was... I have to say, I didn't know. I, how much of that did you know before diving into this I've, episode? Uh, I've read Keith's memoir, Life, right. twice. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> right. So, so a you, great deal. Yeah. And I don't intend to expound on all that stuff. I feel like there's particular things to touch on, but uh, yeah. I don't need to use that as a battery. Well, the of... album touches on some of those it, things. It so does. Have, we, it's unavoidable. But Which I didn't realize as yeah. a as a not neophyte to the album, but as a neophyte to the story behind the album. Um, I haven't read Keith's autobiography. I want to talk about that in terms of what I feel like it brings to the sound of this record, and like why yeah. it is as weird and sprawling and wonderful and insane as it is. And I feel like that really is a product of, like you say, where they were and 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 how this album came to be. Right. And then there was a ton of tracks done in Los Angeles with session musicians and Billy Preston and Mick Jagger kind of taking over because Keith was strung out. Now, let me just clarify something. There were no, to the best of my knowledge, no track, maybe I'm wrong, correct me if I'm wrong, none of the tracks existed only in L.A. They, they layered, they, they worked on things. Right? Yes. Everything started in France. All the tracks on this album have their... Or England. Uh Base right in in those earlier sessions for uh, yeah. Sticky Fingers or in France yes and then much was done to them which, much was which done I wondered about so much after finding out that you know I, I wish I could tear the tracks apart wish uh, it's amazing yeah and it's amazing yes it is a mess um, but it also just fucking rocks and it holds together amazingly and it is a incredible example of what you can uh, consummate musicians. Not losing any of the energy yeah. that you put into a recording. I, I don't get it, how this album is as good as it well, is. Well, they were simultaneously in exile and just fully 100% committed to uh, the, the, the creation of this work. Yeah. And, and a lot of the you know, reviews and retrospectives that I read, um, I, I'm not sure what Keith uh, had to say about it specifically, but a lot of the stuff I read talked about how, you know, Keith had always been the role, and Mick was the rock, and he, he <laughs> needed things a certain way. He needed to know what he was doing, and um, you know, Keith was more like Lennon, just wanted to kind of take it and be done with it, and kind of roll with things. Yeah, and that this is this album is one of the very few times, if maybe the only time, that Mick kind of relaxed into that. Um, maybe because of the environment, maybe because everybody was just sort of rolling in and out and different groups of people would be there and that, that chaotic environment that they created. And he was a little distracted. He got married in the middle of this, right? Right, that's right. Um, and, uh, you know, he let go. And so they were all just sort of submitting to the creation of the piece. Yeah. And at least once an episode, I have to talk about the Black Crows, and I'm certainly going to talk about them <laughs> a lot more than I normally would. Uh, because this album is kind of where they live, sort of a prototype in the world of music. Yeah, yeah I, th I feel like a lot of uh, the inspiration for 
their sound comes from not yeah. just the Rolling Stones, but this record. Predecessor. Prototype is a ridiculous thing to say. They, Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a predecessor, yeah, obvious influence to the Black Crows. Good Lord, everything that they're about. And and their best album, their most amazing album, some would say probably Amorica, but for me it's Southern Harmony, was created under slightly similar circumstances. Um, and I think they emulated the creation of Exile on Main Street uh, in order, uh, that was actually more Amorica, where they tried to create that environment. But in the creation of Southern Harmony, they had been uh, in a, a legal mess where somebody had taken, basically signed them to a horrible contract, and they had to work their ass uh, out of it. Like Alan Klein did with the Stones. Exactly They right. finally got their way out of it, and exactly. this is the first album that they made totally free. Yeah. Yeah, totally on their own. Of so Alan this, Klein. this has a yeah. lot in common with some of the other records we've talked about. You know, Stevie Wonder's sort of artistic awakening, and uh, I forget who we were relating that to in, in one of the other episodes that we had done. But similarly, um, same for the Crows. They they created this environment where they were just touring their ass off, and then creating this new record as fast as they could, uh, in and and submitting to it completely for a long, long period of time. Yeah, both the tour and the creation of that album. So, a, yeah, that's totally this Exile on Main Street. They were free. Yeah. Uh, they had a portable recording unit, and they just wanted to make some shit. They they seemed unbeholden yeah. to the pressures of top 40 radio, right. pop radio, top 100, or which whatever. Which is appropriate, because there's nothing approaching a number one hit on this record. Oh, come on, Tumbling Dice, which well, it's was number seven. huge, number seven. Topped but still, out at number seven. Yeah, but it's as, is as much of a hit as any other of Rolling Stone's classics. I mean, I certainly think that there are three or four songs, Tumbling Dice included, on this record that could be any band's greatest song ever. Yeah, but let's just talk for a minute about how... Yeah, so they could just be themselves. They could do all the excesses that they wanted to do uh, in every way, musical and otherwise. Yeah. And yeah, I think Mick just sort of just settled into it. Everyone settled into it like... Half the band didn't live in in the villa. Right. Charlie lived an hour and a half away. Right. Uh, And so everyone was all kind of, everyone wanted to just be their own person, but also still be the Rolling Stones. And so they let Keith just sort of like set it up and just get it going. And I mean, Keith, it sounds like he was a nightmare the whole time. Right. Um, But like he would show up and they would just do crazy stuff. And they finally put together this glob of an album out of it. And they're like, fuck it. Let's just make it a, two record set let's just put it all out and there are a lot of tracks that you can kind of easily identify as things that would go and be amazing you know uh unreleased tracks or whatever off a normal length album uh and it would be a pretty killer record if it was a single length record but But it wouldn't be the same it It wouldn't be this it it wouldn't wouldn't be as great be because i feel like you're almost in there with them and there are times where it's like okay uh or a little not uncomfortable but just like you uh the whole Situation is overstayed. It's welcome. Yeah, but it's still wonderful. Yeah. Um. So I really feel like this is an album that puts me there, and it's amazing that they managed to kind of tie all the loose strings together in L.A. And that was all Mick getting right. everybody together right, and right. just making it into trying to whip it into something a blob. Yeah, more than a blob. Yeah. And it's in it. I want to talk about how uniquely wonderful the Rolling Stones are as an example of a group of musicians playing together. But if, but immediately I, I came upon a comment that you made last time Ooh. about Charlie Watts. Yeah. And, I, and it makes me... Because you said something about how, like, people didn't give Charlie Watts, like, his due or whatever, and that 
I took a spit take of my Caprinia. <laughs> In my experience, that had been the case. Okay. Interesting. Um, I feel like I they... don't feel that way. Okay, I, good. I, oh, so gosh, you've heard no. other people slag on Charlie Watts? I have. I have heard other people say that Charlie Watts is a boring drummer. Ugh. Now, this is Steel Wheels era. And I probably at the time didn't know any better. Well, but the Rolling I Stones certainly know better now. They still sounded like the Rolling Stones, but they Absolutely. weren't covering any new ground. They right. were just being them and getting back together again. That's right. Um, so at that point, okay, I don't think that their fault is with Charlie Watts because he's the Rolling Stones. Even with Brian Jones's passing and bringing yeah. on Mick Taylor, yeah. so this is the Mick Taylor era. Right. Uh, their second guitarist, who was a very skilled like slide player. What was um, he on John Mayall? Yeah. Um, Blues Breakers? Yes. Yeah. I believe, yes, he did. But he was only there for a couple albums and, and uh, because he couldn't like kind of cope with the right. Rolling Stones. <laughs> right, right. Rolling Stones-ness. Right. And then they brought in Keith's best friend, Ron Wood, and he's been there ever since. Right. But Brian passed, uh, I think this is Mick Taylor's second record. Um, but the, the rest of the four, Charlie Watts, Bill Wyman, Keith and Mick, yep. like have been together for... Straight through. Close to 10 years at this point. Yep. And they have this... Sp- absolutely unique kind of feel and sound to their music where you feel like it's going to fall apart hmm. in any second. You're just yeah. waiting for the one off note or a clatter or something yeah. to make the whole thing collapse. Yeah. But it never right. comes. Right. And it, you are held on to the spinning <laughs> what was that uh, you know music park ride where you're stuck to the wall and you're oh, yeah, spinning yeah. around <laughs> you're waiting for it to slow down just enough for you to fall but right. you never do and yeah. you're caught on the side spinning around with this band on every song in every second round and round and round oh, it just they whatever it's one of my favorites of theirs whatever second you drop onto this album or a Rolling Stones album it yeah. sounds great it feels yeah Great. Yep. I know in the Gets Grubelto episode, I said something about like, you can't like describe swing, but you can, and I'm going to try. Um, but they swing and they have feel like you can't imagine can come out of physical objects in the hands mm-hmm. of human beings. Yes. I, I think I, I, I wait, the, I, you're saying the stones. The stones. Yeah. I, I think of them that highly. I mean, I think Gets Grubelto can swing and they're awesome. Um, and they can play with other people, and you know, there's there's lots of great swing in there, and yeah. lots of great feel there. Yeah. But I, I'm my point is really about the Rolling Stones as a convection, a con- collection of individuals, right. and how they feel together. And Charlie and Keith play off each other in such an amazing way. I don't. I feel like the best example of Charlie and Keith's particular way that they groove is not on Exile on Main Street, but it's mm. Honky Tonk Woman. Oh yeah. So you think of the beginning of Honky Tonk Woman. It is drums. And guitar. The bass isn't even there yet. Right. And Charlie's just like pushing the beat. He's like just a little ahead. Yeah. And then Keith is like just a little behind. Yeah. So they're pushing and pulling each other, but not actively. Like just kind of the, it's almost as if it's like opposite isometric pressure. Like they're both leaning against each other. Wow. And in the, in the, in, in that, creating a balance. Take a sec. Do yourselves a favor. And take a second to listen to Honky Tonk Woman, just, just even so you can just, hear exactly what Peter's just talking about. Absolutely, and listen through into where the chorus comes in, because that's where so Bill nice. Wyman comes in, and he he's sort of like the rock. He's the center. He's right. not showy. Yeah, he doesn't take a a second to draw attention to himself, but he's you know he's the <laughs> the Derek Smalls, the lukewarm water between <laughs> <laughs> the ice and fire. Right, and you know you, you hear and him then say Mick that. Is, Mick is a flag waving up on top of it all. <laughs> 
Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And then Mick or Ronnie are, are, are there for color and texture and completion and yeah. extra unexpected quality. Right. So Exile on Main Street is a perfect way to show what the Stones uniquely do as the Stones. They, they, they rock, they swing, yeah. they do gospel, they do kind of cokey, uh, hokey country stuff. They go wherever they want. They go wherever they and want. They, and it never really sounds perfect, but it always sounds good. Yeah. And um, this is why I, I might argue, because so in the way that you've described them, do you sort of qualify the Rolling Stones as the greatest rock and roll band in the world? I, I would. I will go and say that. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So okay. So I it, will go and say that as as an example of that kind of music and that kind of feel and what it means to have that kind of energy and rawness yeah. and yeah. darkness and sadness and jubilation at the same time and just like fucking right backbeat swinging drive. Uh, I follow Carl Newman, the lead singer uh, and the sort of like mastermind of the new pornographers on Twitter. Mm -hmm. And he said something about like, think about every garage band yeah. that you know of. They're all based on the Stones. Yeah. Like every band of the 60s and 70s, we were talking earlier about, you know, creating the template for a lifestyle or whatever. But like the Stones created the template for musicians. Yes. That still exist to this day. I mean, I go to the rehearsal space and it smells like it smells like probably the basement of yeah. the French villa. Right. Um, still. And that is the legend. The Rolling Stones are the legend that all of it's based on. They're the greatest rock and roll band in the history of the world. Mick Jagger is the prototypical front man. Right. He, is the, he ma invented and mastered. I mean, didn't invent whatever. Frank Sinatra, blah, blah, blah. But right. But a rock band. Right. He made it. And they have the iconic songwriting duo component. With right? the mysterious, yeah. dark and mysterious guitar yeah. player. Yep. Exactly. With his own strange technique. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I totally agree with you on all of this. And this is why I say Exile on Main Street is the greatest rock and roll record in the world. Because yeah. it you've expressed already yourself in this episode that they are the greatest rock and roll band in the world. <laughs> and that Exile on Main Street is the opus expression of this rock band. In all its raw and messy yes. form. It is the best portrait of the greatest rock and roll band in the world. So yeah. I think... Yep. It's the greatest rock and roll <laughs> record in the history of the world. I cannot argue with that logic. I mean, that line of reasoning is airtight. That's what takes me there. <laughs> Should we talk about these songs, or do you have more? Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I could go on about the Rolling Stones forever, and I feel like we should just start getting into songs. Because can I get a quick? Can I get a quick? I know yes. I just asked this, but can I get a quick story of how you met this album? This album. I met later, but the Rolling Stones have been with me as long as my earliest memories. Wow. I mean, I feel like one of my early memories was being four or five and watching cartoons. My mother was outside hanging laundry on the line, because that's what we did. Um, God bless her. And on TV came the album, uh, commercial, because commercials used to sell albums. Right. For Hot Rocks right. by the Rolling Stones. Yes, Hot Rocks is how I met the Stones as well. And, you know, he, he's singing As Tears Go By, like I, Ruby Tuesday, yep. 19th Nervous Breakdown. I remember exactly yeah. how that commercial totally. goes. Yeah. Um, it was and probably I, the same commercial that brought me to it. I have no idea. Oh, probably. Or maybe my dad had it. I don't know. But that's how I met the Stones as well. Yeah. And, uh, and so I literally went right outside to my mother and I'm like, Mom, can we buy this Rolling Stones wow. Hot Rocks record? And wow. she's like, yes. Amazing. Because she... She knew the Rolling it. Stones. Yeah, right My dad on. knew the Rolling Stones. My dad's um, 
Musical taste ends with the counterculture. Anything from 65, 66 when the Beatles started to get weird. Like he loves Beatlemania yeah. and he loves early Rolling Stones, but everything when they, they yeah, started yeah. to put eyeliner on, he was out. Yeah, I think my dad was similar. Yeah. yeah. Um, but he like, I can't get no satisfaction. I mean, he's a, you know, yeah. Cuban uh, enthusiastic rock and roll fan and, you know, like he loves that tune. Yeah. So the Rolling Stones have always been around. Like when Tattoo You came out, I yeah. was, you know, to quote the kids, there for it. Like, nice. I was fucking psyched. Yeah. I imitated mixed dance on the Start Me Up video. Yeah. Uh, they were just around. They yeah. they were like core to me. But Exile on Main Street, I didn't really even know about as a record, frankly, until I think high school. And that was already deep into sort of my Stones consumption. And for whatever reason, I mean, they kind of came up again. So Tattoo You came out, and then like everybody at school was into them when I was in like fifth or sixth grade. So that's the early 80s. And then they had a big HBO concert. Yes. Where you had to do a pay-per-view Rolling Stones HBO concert, and that's the concert where Keith whacks that fucking dude with his guitar. I'll post it to our Twitter. Oh wow! It's a insane um, I forgot moment. There's yes. all these balloons and everything. Yeah. And this dude oh, comes yeah, up on yeah, stage, yeah. and he's coming for Mick, and yeah. Keith takes off his guitar, beans the guy, yes. puts it back on, and keeps playing. <laughs> and then we watch How that live on HBO. The greatest rock and roll band. <laughs> I mean, come on. Come on. Oh, my gosh. So that's my, I mean, my introduction to this is later already deep into Rolling Stones lore. And, and what was it like to meet this album at that point, having already had this? I mean, I already had a deep love from them. I, mean, I felt like Hot Rocks remained my favorite for a long time until I sort of maybe got into Beggar's Banquet more. Um, Exile was one that was always like on the B-list. I didn't think too much of it. I knew the songs and I loved Tumbling Dice and, you know, I, I knew them, but it wasn't one that I returned to a lot. I think I was still just... In, I don't think I had gotten into any specific Rolling Stones records because they have so many compilations, Hot Rocks, Big Hits, High Fives. Yeah. Uh, phased Cookies or whatever that other one was. You know, <laughs> yeah. there were so many... The Alan Klein Part 2. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So there were so many of those, and I, th I think I was just kind of like focused on those, and then somebody started telling me about Exile on Main... They were like, oh, you're into the Stones? Have you heard Exile on Main Street? And so I kind of heard about it before I made my way to it, and I think it was the first time that I actually started to get into their records. Yeah. I decided to start with that. And so I approached it really as like a kind of a, a big deal. Uh, and it's remained that way to me. Uh, it, it, it is a, um, yeah, it's, it's a story album. I mean, it's, I, I listen to a lot of radio drama and things like that and I sort of think of this album that way. Oh, and that's cool. before I ever even knew about all the background of it. It just felt like a very intense, very separate, very its own thing yeah. kind of record from beginning to end and it was a, ro a room that I could get lost in and even still do as I was, you know, diligently listening to to do prep for the episode. You still can kind of get lost in the various sort of sections of that basement yes you know the it's such a perfect humid <laughs> right french basement it, it's such a yeah. beautiful artistic representation of the place that it came with i didn't yeah. know that before it's beautiful to find that out yeah but it felt that way to me from the very beginning that's great that all came through without any foreknowledge of, of what it was like it just became this place i love it and i was like yeah yeah this thing was recorded in you know is it was it led zeppelin four that they did that way and 
didn't um Yes, they recorded a bunch of it at some other place. It's it's I think it's in England and there's yeah. the legend of the when the levee breaks drums are at the bottom of the stairwell. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I can't remember. And then where. Uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers similarly did that for uh, Blood Sugar Sex Magic. They like rented a house and they tried to do it that way. There are these like Yeah, again, s- part of the legend. Right, exactly. And so I was like, "Yes, this is one of those albums I didn't even know." Yeah. I was really happy to find That's that out. That's great. Yeah. But it, it, wow, that's, yeah, very well described. So, all right, so Rocks Off mm. starts with what feels like a traditional Keith kind of riff. Yep. Dun, 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 dun. Um, and I don't know. It's perfect. It makes me think a little bit of Dead Flowers. It makes me think a little bit of uh, pr- plenty of previous Stones hits. It's like right in, in their place. I feel like one of the beautiful alchemic things about the Rolling Stones yeah. are the harmony vocals of Mick and Keith. Yeah. They neither of them are skilled vocalists in a traditional sense. No. But they are so perfectly themselves and so fucking awesome and they sound amazing yeah. together. Yeah. Like all the high keening vocals that you hear over Mick are Keith. Yeah. He's up there and he's in there and it's really high and thin and reedy, but works against Mick's kind of bloating and bleeding. <laughs> it really reveals, and, and I've not read the book, but it really reveals what you're saying, uh, what a genius Keith is, because you're talking now about him having a very particular and very um, complex musical relationship with Bill Wyman. Uh, yeah. Sorry, with uh, Charlie Watts. Yes. And, uh, and so now you're saying he's also maintaining a, a complex and difficult and not in his wheelhouse musical alignment and relationship with the lead singer. And there is also this sort of foundational thing that makes the Rolling Stones sound what it is, yeah. which is his exchange with Mick or Ron or Brian or whoever it is, that sort of second guitar. Isn't that amazing? And how he weaves in and out with them. So that's a totally different... These are three concurrent... Totally independent, yes, divergent musical relationships that he's building. They're very intimate. Yeah, all of them, and, and in their own wild. unique way. They're not. They're unlike the sort of traditional bass and drums relationship, which is sort of lockstep. That's right. We're keeping this this party together. Yeah. While everybody else floats around and, and sort of creates the pictures, uh, you know. However, you could argue with different parts of that, but that's a fundamental piece of. Um, certainly jazz, but also rock and roll, mm-hmm. you know, that drum-bass relationship. But it's, I think, a little bit more predictable and a little bit more structured and clear. Yes. Keith is doing weird things with three different aspects of a song. Yeah. Um, He's the musical director of the Rolling Stones. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, it well, is, Brian started it, but, yeah, but, but Keith, Keith is took the, over. He's the true visionary, and I think he sees himself that way. Yep. And he sees that he has a role to play. Um and he he plays it well. He really is the the straw that stirs the drink. Like he keeps it, he he's the one the the fulcrum that makes it all work and hang together. I would agree. Yeah, I would agree. I I don't know that I ever really, I sort of, yeah, I don't know. I certainly didn't ever have in my head how interesting his relationship was with yes. these three different aspects of each song. And he's Charlie's rushing and he's pulling back. You know, that's yep. their relationship. Yep. He and Mick are like nose to nose. Yeah. Um, and then he and the other guitar player are like, you know, arm in arm. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's a really interesting mix. Pretty I mean, wild. I, it's a wonderful relationship. I mean, I have to just have the quick digression of like, I'm, I'm in a band and we've been together now for six years and two of them are two of my oldest friends. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I have intimate relationships with all of them and yeah. it's a remarkable thing to experience. Yeah. Uh, I, 
again, a, as an actor and a, and yep. a performer, yep. you have that with various degrees with no different question. people that you perform with. Well, like, you need it. I know yep. who you are. Yep. I know where you are. And I mean, the more of that there is, especially in improv, which uh, you know is what the bulk of my performance experience has been. Yeah. Without that kind of trust and and um, relationship being sort of open and embraced, you're not going to see a funny show. Yeah. You can see a funny people maybe, but you won't see a fun you won't see a truly funny improvised show. Like art. Unless there's that trust. Yeah. Um, right. Collaborative art. Mick and Keith were great yeah. school friends, right? They were great school friends. They were friends. So yeah. Mick had joined Brian and then brought Keith, or maybe the other way around. I can't remember. I can't remember exactly yeah. how they all kind of congealed, but uh, yeah. I One mean, of them, you know, answered Brian's ad. He was pulling together a band. Right. And um, eventually brought in the other. I think Mick had joined and then eventually brought in Keith, his friend. Yeah. I mean, it's just amazing that they found each other. Yeah. And then they were forced. And then that they hung on. Yeah, and they were forced into a room and said, write a song, and they wrote, As Tears Go By. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Well, I don't know that story. Yeah. That was the first song they ever wrote together. Really? Yeah. I sit and watch as tears go by. What a perfect song. Sold it to Marianne Faithful. Yeah. A year later, did it themselves, and yeah. then off, off they went. Yeah. Like, you got to start doing original material. Go in there in the kitchen yeah. and write a song. Yeah, Brian Jones did not have a lot of writing credits. No, but he had some. Yep. And apparently there was a, there was a whole thing with them uh, Keith, I learned this from other sources because Keith didn't talk about it much. <laughs> that there was some mini mutiny about the songwriting credits and how like other people brought ideas to the band, but Keith and Mick were just like nope, and yes. then kind of turned around and turned it into something. Yes, I think Wyman has yeah complained he, about that. He did, he wrote the riff to Jumpin' Jack Flash, and he didn't right. get songwriting credit for it. Right. Anyway, all these are disputes, and we're, no one is going to say that the Rolling Stones are perfect people. Keith oh, is God, not, no. a, not a perfect person. No. <laughs> you know, no one asked him to be a role model. <laughs> He's become one. <laughs> wow. We, we got off, uh, off of Rocks Off. Um, yeah. Uh, so let's start with that, and let's so get in there. I, I think it announces the album pretty respectfully yeah. and pretty accurately. It's raunchy. It's a bit uh, of a fanfare. <laughs> it's rowdy, um, but it's still tight. And um, I, I think it sets the tone really well for the record. Yeah. Um, I love how it sort of starts to churn and then the horns later in the song dun, come in and kind of crown dun, it. Bobby Keys. Yeah. And, <laughs> Yeah, I think it, it announces itself as just kind of a song, but the horns come in and let you know that there's something very special uh, happening, and I, I think that's a perfect introduction to the album. And there's because also like a weird digression in the middle, boom, boom, and they get mixed vocal with some wah, 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 wah kind of watery stuff on it. Like right, the whole right. groove just drops out, and it goes into halftime into this weird like little thing. I think that if we're talking about this album as a big, uh, you know... <laughs> sprawling house yeah this is a perfect foyer yeah <laughs> right <laughs> with a sweeping staircase yeah and uh, it just welcomes you it's like listen this is this is a, a a unique place welcome aboard yes yeah totally and then rip this joint they go right into this sort of like all right the party has begun oh sorry before we leave yeah uh, rocks off that line sunshine borns uh, sunshine bores the daylights out of me. <laughs> Isn't that great? I mean, that could be the. B I, I'm going to say this a lot. That could be the best lyric a band ever writes. Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't come anywhere near any of their best lyrics or songs. Right. It's just ridiculous what these guys have accomplished. And even already, even if you just look at their career to this album. To this album, right? God, there, there, damn, there are five or six, maybe ten or more songs. 
that they have already at this point produced that are far better. And 25 monster tracks plus. Th- than anything this album has. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yet, uh, we actually up the ante when Rip This Joint starts going. Yeah. Even higher energy, which, you know, is obviously always, you're always capable of doing, but you s- start with a song like Rocks Off and it feels like it's set a pretty good pace. Yes. And they up the ante. I love it. Yeah. It's great. Yep. And it's a great swing. It's a great, great stomper. Uh, like, they're not going to let you off easy. They're going to rock your ass off. I, I have written down here, it sounds like a choreographed bar fight. Don't, don't, don't. <laughs> okay. It kind of right? does. Not and choreographed has a bad connotation to it. But no, I know I just what you mean. mean it's planned in advance because they're d- jamming it gets together. It's frayed and whatever, but it never loses its structure. It, yeah. it still it remains tight. It remains like a, you know, a compelling song. It doesn't just fall apart the way. And and I think that speaks to what you were describing before that yeah. anything could come along and and break this little gyroscope off its axis. It never does. But it just never happens. Yeah. Which again. You know, let's let's keep in mind they have just been told that they owe hundreds of millions of dollars or whatever it is, tens of millions of dollars. They've fled the country into this house, and uh, they have nothing but this situation to worry about. In their time, yeah, they've they've settled things with Alan Klein. They've gotten some of their royalties, or at least yes, some money, uh, not a ton. Entirely on drugs. I mean, they are constantly, yeah. they have no idea who's coming and going. God. It's a total chaotic scene. They're, they have to like, run around. Yeah. Like, did you read about how, like, the basement, which is where they were recording, had so many different compartments and sections that yeah. people were so far apart, and then they'd have to run in from the mobile recording studio thing down to, like, give instructions and yeah. tell what was going on. And there's just chaos non-stop chaos in every component of their life yes and they still manage to keep this tight and clean <laughs> tight and clean and structured it just because they are so seasoned at this point right at rocking right that i feel like a lot of these songs probably came together pretty fast yeah. because they had some oh, sort no of question. basic ideas and they were just like they are just so together that they could just kind of blast at least some basics out. I mean, what I'm imagining is that they did a lot of this. Again, when they did a re-release in 2010, there's like 12 other songs. Yes. And they just did a shit ton of tracking. Yeah. And then later... And we, and, be- we benefit and, from yeah. the work that happened later in L.A. Yeah. And so know? that was what it would took, right. is like they had this just big, massive raw right. material that they came together. I'd out love of to hear those raw tracks. Sh- yeah. Man, when is that coming out? Yeah, I know. It's true. They need a big box set or whatever. Oh, they, whatever passes for a big box set nowadays. What's the Beatles one that came out? The Beatles Naked? Yeah, Let It Be Naked, yeah. which is my... I love... I think that is that is exactly what Let It Be should be, is Let It Be Naked. Right. It's perfect. Uh, it I all sounds hear, amazing. I uh, Exile French. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Let French it be in Le Nude? <laughs> yeah, I don't know how you say Let Excellent. it be. Exile uh, in, in Exile French. In the, uh, uh, anyway, I <laughs> will not even fake French. Um, yeah, I, I love Rip This Joint and how it cranks up the volume and how they just kind of throw it together. And it's another incredible Keith and Mick vocal. Yeah. Like, the two of them sound great together. Yep. It's a mess, but it doesn't matter. Bobby Keys on this track, unbelievable. Awesome solo. Unbelievable solo. Yeah. And just right from the beginning... Um, you know, just comes in with that. Yep. I mean, makes the song in so many ways. S- so often throughout this album. I really love, too, in this album, over and over, and I think these two are just as good an exam- example as any, um, of how balanced everything is. You know, Mick is usually much higher in the mix for them. Um, and I think he's 
often spoken not too highly of this album, and a lot of people think it's because he's not clear right. in it. Oh, frankly, I mean, I was thinking about uh, our conversation during Gets Gilberto listening to this. Yeah. Like, I don't know most of what's being sung. Right, and you don't care. And I don't and care because every now and again a phrase will come out right. like the daylights are, you know, and pouring the daylights out of me. And you'd be like, right. oh, I'm in. I'm in the moment. Totally. I'm there. And every song has a few of those moments that keep you glued. Right. And so you're saying just like with the Brazilian music, like the vocals are sort of de-elevated into this level where it's just part of the it's music. music. It's music. Yes. Yes. It's all part of the music. It's music. You're not as concerned about what he's saying. You're just hearing all these things. Right. And there's such a great balance with the vocals and the guitar and the organs and the keys and the bass. You know, it's just all so balanced. And the backing vocals, Ugh. this is a master class yes. in backing vocals yes. throughout this album. Yes. Um, just yes. awesome, perfect, perfect parts, beautiful performances out of chaos. They perfectly they, captured. It's like a blob of sand that then they build these wonderful castles on top of, or right. something. I don't know because all like the not done in a recording. I keep having <laughs> to emphasize that perfection. Yeah, achieved. Yeah, by the pinnacles of the the genre, um, in in the, in the worst of circumstances. Yeah. Yes. totally, totally out of their heads, and in a basement because of a mansion. It's, because of a Nazi they're, mansion. There's, because <laughs> there's just no constraints and there's no right. deadlines and they're not paying anything. They have right. nothing to worry about. Right. They have nothing to worry about. All they do is show up and create. Man. And it has been the template ever since. If and you're listening to this and you can put yourself not with the don't worry about the drugs or the mansion in France. If you can, if you do a thing and you can find a way to create a space in your life uh, for a year, for two years, whatever it is. Six months, one week, a day, to give yourself the space to do that thing in this with this kind of abandon, with no other <sighs> worries. Do it. Do it. Jump and do it. If you have the ability to do that, I feel like I had a phase in my life where I did that. I think we met during that phase. Yeah. Uh, and I'm really, really thankful for that. Yeah. Where you could just like you had it. Yeah. This was the thing I was doing. We both had right. other jobs to kind of keep right. things going, but right. that they weren't the sort of focus of our lives. We had something else we were doing, and we were we were able to dedicate every spare moment to that. And it was like, what are you doing, man? It's like I'm not sure, but it's this. And boy, does it feel good, and I'm yeah. alive and I'm making stuff. Yeah. And just creating and riffing all the time. Yeah, and here we are, 20 years later, doing yeah. a new thing. Yeah. Exactly. Taking at least an hour or an hour and a half. Who knows? If you can find a space in your world Take it. to I mean, do it. Writers go on writers retreats. Yep. You know, I take occasional personal days to yeah. kind of do that. Yep. Yeah. It's and great. we take a couple of hours every exactly couple of weeks and to do weeks. this. <laughs> so, so rip this joint. Uh, rip this joint. I love shake your hips. Comes next, and it's one of two or three tracks on this album that I feel like are Fleetwood Mac tracks. Oh. They sound like a Fleetwood Mac. Song, which is a high, high compliment for me. I don't know where you are. Wow. Right now. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I, which phase? Like, yeah. Uh, th th similar phase. <clears throat> the Mid Peter Green phase? <laughs> um, I or don't know them by name, yeah. but similar time frame. Or like the Buckingham, Lindsey Buckingham era of. Probably Buckingham, I'm so guessing. Like rumors in the, like the 70s? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huh, interesting. Yeah, they, they sound like. Um, I don't know. They, that band jumps into my mind. Maybe it's part of the production of them? I don't know. Maybe. But there's something that sort of jumps out. Uh, they're a little bit more organic. Uh, what are the Fleetwood tracks? This one, there was at least one other that I noted. Well, it's Turd on the Run. <laughs> and that might be it. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, those two. They're cleaner. 
Yep, for sure. Yep. One thing, Fleetwood Mac in the Buckingham Knicks era. Yep. Uh, the word I always think of is clean. Um, like pristine mixes, and I don't think this is anything on. Uh, Exxon on Main Street is pristine. There's always a little bit of sort of murkiness to it. There's a bit of an echo, but this yeah. is among the. Cl- this is one of the few tracks that has a little bit of space to it. Yeah, it. That's right. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And I feel like this is one of the ones that absolutely had to have come out of the French villa. Wasn't started no in England. It was something because it was probably in the repertoire for years. It's a Slim Harpo song. And I have to go into quick digression here because one of the things that I love about the Rolling Stones is they have introduced me to tons of awesome blues artists. That's great. And so I, I think it's interesting to think about then. There's lots of discussion nowadays about cultural appropriation. Yes. And could you accuse the Rolling Stones of culturally appropriating blues? American blues, which they no question they grew up on, and yeah. they blew up you know grew up on all these black blues records, and then kind of regurgitated it as their own thing. Yeah, sure, I guess you could. Yeah, easy. Um, however, the upside to that is that I spent a shit ton of money on black blues records. Yep, I bought an awesome Slim Harpo compilation, Excello. It's you. I found it on Google Music today. Oh. It is the best party record. Wow. Slim Harpo is a, was a singer and harmonica player and songwriter. Uh, you know, forties, fifties blues, and his and he's got a, like a strong backbeat. It like it feels great. It's awesome. But um, you know, the Stones have covered many, 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 many blues songs from Robert Johnson to you know sure. everywhere. Um, it the, the the list is endless, and I felt like they have been an incredible gateway to. This beautiful flowing river of music yeah. that I don't know if I would have gotten into without it. So a cultural appropriation, I feel like, has a negative uh, connotation for a reason. Um, however, I feel like there is something to be said for the propagation of this kind of music and the perpetuation of it through pop culture and giving people an opportunity and access to be introduced to it. I totally agree with everything you've said. I I think that it is certainly possible to accuse the Stones of cultural appropriation. I think where your case falls apart, if you choose to do so, is that they've done it responsibly. Um, they and, love it. And, and by that I mean <laughs> to say, not only do they love it... Not only do not only is there the benefit of their success exposing these uh, artists uh, more on a national global stage, whatever, but they have not simply done the songs. They're not just. D- I mean, a lot of the songs that say Elvis took, he just did the song. Right. Um, I feel like certainly in with regard to the the relationships you were describing with Keith and and the other band members, but just in general. They did something with the songs. They pushed the songs further, and they took the the song, the the blues song, and they just evolved it one step. Right. And one of the things that I've always loved, I, again, I, I'm going to have to talk about them a lot, the Black Crows, is I feel they did the same thing. They took the things upon which they were based and the things that they loved, and they took it one step further. They, they sort of fulfilled their obligation to sort uh. of expose things, you know, Travel with them, live them, interpret them, and push them one more step further. Yeah, and I think that's what a, a within the tradition of the blues, 
that feels to me to be living up to that tradition. That feels to me responsible. And that like they're friends with them. Yeah. Um, you know, they get to know them. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, I don't want to spend this time necessarily splitting the hairs in cultural appropriation versus just like making it your own, which is uh, should I feel like personally should always any musician should have the freedom to take from any style that they want and do something with it. Right. That's I, if you're I feel like do something with more it. If you're just going to do it. That's yeah. different. Right. And take credit for it. Like right. I came up with it. Right. But I think that the Rolling Stones. I mean, frankly, I don't even know why you, you know, like, there are so many examples you can point to of really popular covers of songs that are just the song. Yeah. Done by a new group of people. Right. I don't understand. And they give them credit and it's all <clears throat> fine and everything. I don't understand why anybody would just do that. Yeah. Right. I mean, Shake Your Hips, uh, to get back to it, is similar to the Slim Harpo um, arrangement. Mm. But they make it their own. They absolutely do. It's their version of it. Right. I mean, Mick is even imitating him a little bit, frankly. Yeah. <laughs> and it sounds like one of the things that came out of one of the latest stretches of the evening that they just were doing, and then they ended up loving it. And They grew they up on this it. shit. This is yeah. what brought them together. This yes. is what they were. They wanted to be a blues band. They were called they the Rolling Stones after, I can't remember whose song it was. But. Right. I think it was a Muddy Waters song. Yes, thank you. Um yeah, I mean, he looked down, Brian Jones he was asked to like name the band on the spot, and he looked down at a record, yeah. and it was a Muddy Waters record, and he yeah. said, ah, oh, Ro Rolling Stones, it was with the, the apostrophe. And they decide to make a double album, songs like that, that you're playing in the middle of the night, you're just doing, oh, let's do Shake Your Hips, yeah. and, and, and they just roll with it, and they, they love it. When you decide to do a double album, that's the kind of song you're going to keep. And I'm glad they. I'm really glad they did. I know it sounds great, and I love those stings with the um, uh, the sax and the harmonica together. Yes. And that's Why Mick on harmonica. Want... He's an awesome harp player. Right. Um, Brian Jones taught him, I think. Oh, I didn't know that. I think so. Quick shout out for the recent Rolling Stones record, Blue and Lonesome. Ooh. If you want to go into their blues stuff, like this is something they did like sometime within the last five years. All right. And they just got together in a studio over a weekend and banged out a bunch of old blues tunes. And now, when you say they. The Rolling Stones. Keith, Mick, Bill? No. Bi no. Oh, uh, shit. Who is their bass player now? Ugh. He's a very successful Charlie? Dude. Charlie, yes. Okay. And Ronnie. Wow, all right. And then their bass player. And I'm gonna, not going to take the time to look it up, but it's fucking awesome. It's yeah. one of my favorite Stones records. Wow. Blue and Lonesome. It's... Uh, I remember when Clapton did that with For the great. Cradle, and I loved that record, too. That, yeah, that's good. I From mean, I feel cradle. like he's a little bit more into the sort of like the Chicago blues stuff, sure, which yeah, is not yeah. my favorite. I feel like the Stones are much more No, but it was this like, return to yeah, like, yeah, yeah, I'm yeah, just yeah, going to yeah. do a blues, I'm just going to throw a bunch of blues songs out at yeah. you. I'm not going to like do my normal thing. Exactly. Like, right. Yes. Yeah. And they just, yeah, the Stones just... Kill it. Great. On Blue and Lonesome. So I'll I, go check I that out. Definitely check that out. So then from there, yes. uh, we move on to Casino Boogie. Yeah, the legend of the... Did you read the I don't. I didn't so the legend on this one that I found in one of the various articles that I read is that Mick wrote couplets and had people sitting around a room pick them out and then took them in that order and wrote the song that way. Great. He wrote like a fuck ton of couplets sure, and just had people... Pick them, and that ended up being the order of the song. Awesome. Yeah, picked out of a hat. Why not? <laughs> and then it's, yeah, there, canonized forever. Right. That's amazing. Um, this one I find a little wandering. It kind of fades away. It's harder uh, for me to pull up in my head. Uh, there are some tracks that jump easy from their title. Mm -hmm. This one always is one of the where I have to be like, uh, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a documentation of the Stones. I, I feel like this is for the you know the director's cut or whatever. Like yeah. it's if you love the Stones and you're just gonna listen to it, and be like, oh, that's them. They sound great. Yeah. But it, it's it's not one of their greater songs. No. Um, it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it's still them, and there's still great parts on it. And it's 
could you couldn't blame it for it being a little bit hidden because of what is to follow. Oh God, right. Which yeah. is the first of many songs uh, I think on this album that could be any band's greatest song ever, mm-hmm. and does not approach any of the Rolling probably Stones. a lesser Rolling Stones hit. Right, right. Of the list of top twenty-five Stone songs, I'm I'm not sure it would make it. Um, I mean, it would on my list, but it, on that Rolling Stones one, I think it was number twenty-four. Okay, yeah, there yeah. you go. Just made it. Squeak- Just under the wire. Squeaked in. Um, Absolutely tremendous song. Yeah. If you can just forget about everything and focus in on the song, I don't know what more you could ask for from a song. And I feel like to to, to go back to your kind of cleaner arrangements sort of concept of the Fleetwood Mac thing. I don't know. Again, I would not associate this with Fleetwood Mac, but it's it is. There's more space. Indeed. Yeah. Um, I have balance and space written down here. Yeah. It is measured in a way that a lot of the other songs in this record are not. Right. But still sounds really loose, and Mick sounds like he's coming up with the words on the spot. Right. Um, One of the best examples of what we were talking about before about not knowing or caring what he's saying. Yeah. 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 Except for that chorus, which yeah. is just classic rock and roll. I mean, I mean, there are there are few better lyrics. I mean, I can't imagine coming up with something as beautiful as that. No, but, I can't either. Um, yeah. There it is. There it is. And and that song isn't just a sort of loose collection either. It's got nice different parts uh, yeah. and lots of the lots of the band playing together in synchrony. Yeah. Uh, and then you have those awesome, great example of background vocals. backing vocals. Uh, added yeah. in L.A. Yep. Um, and uh, the song is just full of beautiful parts. Keith's little solo over the interlude, or his little part, he does... Like, he just makes the tastiest parts. His guitar playing is not showy. No. He is not a shredder of nope. any kind. He does play one or two solos on this record, but most of the soloing is Mick. He is just in there creating the meat and potatoes of this music right. and it just sounds every note is gorgeous yep. and it it's sloppy as hell yep uh, but it has so much feel and so much soul yeah then you flip the disc and sweet virginia <laughs> greets you and i have down in my notes here that this is a record time kind of song it is this is well, uh let me let me just read what i have here back porch cool drink hot day you share a look and you just know how lucky you are to be alive. Uh, the kind of song that makes you want to start a band. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. Take your time and listen to that song uh, and then come back to us because it is, it is a knowing glance between old friends about so much unspoken history and love. And, uh, man, I just I get the best feeling from that song. The song is... A, uh, it's a curative. Yes. It's an elixir. Yes. I, it's a comfort. Yeah. Uh, this is a, a song that goes, runs in my head uh, when I need to pep myself up. You know, when yep. I need to pick myself up. Yep. Wipe that shit off your shoes. <laughs> it is a, yeah, it's a proclamation that you're going to get up off your ass and keep going, but not yet. <laughs> and there's just such, compan- such clear companionship yes. in that one. Yeah. You know, one of the ideas that I had had uh, for for the cover was to just get a bunch of people together, you know, a bunch of friends, and kind of make it a, a hoot nanny and try and get a big room and put a mic in the middle of it and try and record this. And then we keep going with "Torn and Frayed," which might be my Dude. favorite song on the record. Oh, interesting. Um, this was always yeah. On the it battles for me. with obviously with "Love and Cup," but um, I mean. 
to me, this is the heart of the album. This is the this is the epitome of of the record. Um, certainly, you know, rocks off announces, but torn and frayed is is what this is all about. Like they have, they are not in a great place, but they're making it. They're getting through. Yeah, um, th- they're not expecting any more of themselves than they can. I mean, this is real. <laughs> This is like a, a, you know, a song to emulate. Interesting. Yeah, this was always on the B list for me. I did. I had. I need to listen to it again with with that reflection. Uh, the balance, the organ, and the and the piano, everything just meshes. It feels great. Way better than it has any right to, <laughs> uh, given the subject matter and exactly probably the way that they were feeling at the time. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, lyrically, his coat is torn and fr- torn and frayed. Seen much better days, mm-hmm. but as long as the guitar plays, there you go. I yeah. mean that that's what this whole experience was about for them. And as a listener, it feels like that's kind of what it's about for us too. Yep. And that lyric has given me comfort in recent days. Listening to it. Yeah. Yeah. As long as the guitar plays, fucking a. Yeah. Yeah. I'm gonna go home and pick that thing up. Yeah. And as long as we can continue to do that, heart of the album, then everything's okay. That's nice. Yeah, musically, like I always liked it. It's but it was always one that I I probably tuned out a little bit during. Mm. Tune back in. I will. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I didn't realize the Sweetback Angel was about Angela Davis. Oh, I Is didn't it Angela know that. Davis? <laughs> I, I had no idea. This is another one I would put in your Fleetwood Mac column, maybe. But it's maybe. not. I feel like this one only could have been invented in a French basement. Right. Of whoever's around. Again, not every uh, member of the Rolling Stones was there for every session. Right. So a lot of stuff was just sort of like cobbled together or whatever, invented. And uh, other artists came and went. Yeah. Um, and, and I imagine that because it was, it was kind of popular around this time to write a song about her. I mean, she was a, a major cultural figure at the time. Oh. Um, and sh- this is far from the only song uh, about her. Really? Yeah. What no, are some others? Um, what was the list? Huh. I'd have to find it. That's but there fine. Were Angela Davis, other yeah. songwriters, uh, muse. Um, yeah. Well, she was, you know, she was arrested. She was. I mean, I mean, it's all in the lyrics of this song. Yeah, I'll let, yeah, yeah. I'll let people explore it for themselves. But um, yeah, I think when I thought of it as just a weird ode to an African American girl. Yeah. Uh, it. Definitely was not something that I felt like held up well, but realizing what it was about, reading a little bit about it as I prepared for this episode, it certainly changed my perception of this song. I thought it was something that hadn't aged well, and it certainly has a a, a moment here too. No, I mean, I think of Brown Sugar, and I'm just like these dudes. You know, they. Right. I, I just sit and think of like they've had a lot of experiences. Yeah, I, I wish they wouldn't kind of call out the skin color quite so much. Right. Uh, it right. makes me uncomfortable. I'm not. It, it, I'm not crazy about it. Right. I wish they wouldn't. Yeah. Uh, but okay, it was the time. <laughs> so it's good to know that there's this entire other aspect to it that I wasn't and aware. You're of. Right. These guys are in a different place than we are. Did you? Yeah. Uh, John yeah. John Mulaney has an absolutely hysterical uh, bit about. Uh, Mick Jagger working with Mick Jagger when Mick hosted SNL. Oh wow! It's it's one of the funniest pieces That's of stand up I've seen in a long time. I have to hear that. Uh, so definitely f- find John Mulaney talking about Mick Jagger 
I think it's in his most recent uh, Netflix thing, which is apparently just came out. I just love this song for the music. That is the like the jamminess, grooviness, guiro part I've ever heard. That it zhuk, 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 uh, it's just awesome, and it, I like the wood blocks. Yeah, I love the guitar part. Um, the the way that they all work together is the really harmonic great. Is amazing. The harmonica is beautiful. Yep. Um, it's it, a very special track on the album. It is beautiful. Um, it, it's kind of one of those tracks that, even though it's not you know a hit, nor would it ever be. It it gives the album some credibility, yeah. Um, because it is in a different place than a lot of the other tracks. It shows a different set of muscles that the band has that this group of people had. Yep. Uh, at that time, exactly. That's yeah. right. It, and it's an important thing to mix it up in an album like this. Yeah, and it it gives the album some balls, even though it's not the ballsier track. Yeah. It just I don't know. There, there's something. It expands the the scope of this album. And God, how you know, much incredible harmony singing on this song, too. Man. The two of them are just lockstep this whole record. Yeah. Every song has an example of them harmonizing together remarkably. Yeah, I say in some ways it's the best song on the album because it's so much fun to listen to. It makes me want to learn guitar. It makes me want to learn harmonica. Infectious. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it uh, you know, similar to the other one, it makes you want to start a band. Yeah, it really does. Yeah. yeah. And then Love and Cup happens. Oh. And God, I mean, you and I have a history with this song. Right, right, from our Pint Glass Paycheck days. Shout out to Sully, who I told, you know, I well, I sent him the rough mix Oh, nice. Uh, earlier today, and he's like, oh, I wish I had a crack at our song. Like, he, that's, he, it, I, this song, for whatever reason, you know, I read the Rolling Stone review, and they're like, yeah, it's kind of a throwaway, whatever. <laughs> and I'm like, what are you talking about? I, 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 I don't get it. What are you talking about? This song is a jubilation. Yes. It is. Uh, it fights back and forth uh, with "Feeling All Right" by Joe Cocker in my uh, for a spot in my top five. I they they yeah. just they seesaw from time to time. I keep just an actual note in my phone of my <laughs> top five favorite songs, and I update it when I have to. Wait, what is it right now? Uh, what is it right now? Let's find out. Um, I know. I'm pretty sure I know them, but I'll just read them. Where is it? My top five. <laughs> wow, it's in the same document. Uh, no, it's just in my notes file. Oh, Hang okay, on. cool. My top five songs ever. All Apologies, Nirvana, Feeling All Right at the Moment, Joe Cocker, uh, Where the Streets Have No Name, You Too, Thorn in My Pride, Black Crows, and Electric Relaxation by Tribe Called Quest. Whoa. Yeah. All right. Yeah, and I, you know, Feeling All Right moves in and out, Thorn in My Pride moves in and out with a couple of other numbers, and Electric Relaxation moves in and out with a couple of other numbers, but... That's where it's at right now. All right, I'm going to have to keep asking you that. Yeah. Wow. See how the the rankings shift around. They they move from time to time. Huh. (laughs) I move them when I have to. Okay. Uh, Loving Cup is uh, something that we used to cover for an improv show we used to do with our band Pint Glass Paycheck. Yeah. Um, Shout out to Dell, Keith, Mike Watson. Lori. Lori. Just such fun times. Yeah. Improv yeah. Asylum, Improv Boston. Yeah. Pat Healy. Uh, uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> who else did we play with? <laughs> I know, I feel bad. Laurie didn't Jeff, sing on that. right? Did you get Jeff? Uh, Jeff Todd. Yeah. Right, he yeah. did. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Laurie was not featured in that one too bad. In the which one? In, she didn't sing on Love and Cup. No, no. Yeah. That one I had to myself. Yeah. Um, but you play a song, and then there would be improv actors there. 
we would surprise a group of improvisers with short cu- uh, short versions of well-known, so- relatively well-known songs anyway, mm-hmm. uh, this probably being one of the more obscure, and they would do uh, comedic scenes based off those songs for a few minutes, and then the audience would pick what song we do next. Right, out of a, like a number, we would right, give them a series like of numbers. Right, we had songs, and, yeah. and they would pick the next number, and so Live Pod Shuffle was the name of the show. What a great way to learn a bunch of tunes. Yeah. And I love that about this podcast. It's just a great way to learn a bunch of tunes. Exactly. Uh, and this was this is our cover. It's a total joy to do. Yeah. Uh, Dave DeSimone from the Rockmores, uh, the you know the aforementioned friend of thirty years, um, provided a drum track, and uh, you'll hear that later. And oh, it's, I don't know such what fun to sing. I don't know what more there is to say, but I I do want to take this opportunity to give a shout out to Nikki Hopkins, pian- pianist or piano player, one of the piano players on this record. Oh. He plays on this and several well, uh, other man. ones. And, uh, you know, he played with the Stones for a long time. Yeah. Um, he's ridiculous. Wow. Uh, and he's all over this song, and I didn't even try to kind of... I, I, yes, I tried to mimic his vibe, but as far as it would go to put the song across and not to try and pull off Mick, Nicky Hopkins stuff, because his stuff is crazy. This song is a tremendous achievement by a, a band that is accustomed to them, but still, yeah. to me, this song stands out as one of my favorite uh, Rolling Stones songs. Me too. Yeah. Or just songs. Yeah. yeah. This yeah, is one or of my just favorite songs. songs. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I love the message. I, I love the way it's put across. I love the harmonies. Uh, I think we I, talked at yeah. one point about how Jimi Hendrix, maybe not, I, I always feel like Jimi Hendrix, Most many of his songs, uh, he sings with a smile, and I think Mick hardly ever sings with a smile, but on this song, he really does. Yeah. And that's one of the things that made, one of the many things that made me fall in love with this song. Yes. It, it just seems like he's got a massive smile plastered on his face. He's, he usually is, uh, you know, sympathy for the devil, stern, you know, pursed lip. Or, or sexy, lips. or yeah, you know, like yeah. trying to be like, strutting leering. and stuff like that. <laughs> but this one, he just seems like, Delighted. It's openly romantic. Yes, yes, it is. Yeah, and I feel like that's very right where Keith is. Keith is, I would say, more of a romantic. Yes, but he also, you know, he's got that dark side. It's but, very yeah. cinematic imagery in this song, uh, as opposed to much of the rest of the record. They're uh, under underappreciated as lyricists. Yep, I think they their lyrics are really great. Uh, again, this could be one of uh, this could be any band's best song ever. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. This would be a monster hit out of yep. any other band. If you if you had a band and you spent ten years with them of your life and you were able to produce this song, you would feel you had really, really accomplished. Done something. it. Yeah. Done it. Just on this single song. Yeah. Um, did you hear the version on the reissue from 2010? Oh, I didn't like it nearly as much. I'm part yeah. of that could be just because I'm so attached to this particular performance and this. I mean, the, the tempo is better. The drum track is better. I don't know. It's just maybe familiarity. I found it almost absurd. Yeah. Um, I'm like, was, thank God. And I and I do acknowledge there were a couple little intersections here and there where I thought, oh, that's a, that's an interesting choice, I guess. Yeah. But no, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Could keep that one in the closet for all I, <sighs> all I care because this one is a is a perfect piece of music. It is. Yeah. And we can keep talking about it, but you know, we we dedicate right. a few more minutes to it at the end of the episode. Indeed. Please stick around. And Happy. in the meantime, you're you're popping off one album and you're putting on the next. Yes. And you're like, okay, there's two records here. Here we go. And it's a perfect segue from Love and Cup. Right. Right, right. It's, it's the result of Love and Cup. Pretty much. Yeah. And this is a Keith and Jimmy Miller and Bobby Keys in an afternoon in France because it was the one time that Keith was actually early to a session. Right. 
and they're and, the only people up. And they're the only people up, and they knocked it out. Yeah. And then they did the rest in L.A. I never, my whole life, I thought, I could not figure out. I, sometimes you puzzle on a question, and you don't really care about the answer, but you still, it sort of boggles you, you know? And that's how it was. But like, why, did, why did Keith sing that song? Like, it's like one of three or four that he's sung in a 50-year career. It's yeah, pretty much. Insane. Yeah. Um, and so why? Why? And to find out, because he was one of the only guys up. Yeah. <laughs> And it was there, and they're like, this feels good. Just as good a reason as any. Let's keep it. Yeah. Yeah. And to think that, that yeah, it was recorded with drums, guitar, and Barry sax. I, I think it's adorable. I think it's, um, I mean, Keith has said that it, it's exactly as it was. They took it like twice, maybe. Yeah. That. Yeah. And it's exactly what they put down. Um, I mean, they've added layers onto it, but the parts that you hear of him is just. The, That's what just, they did. They just did it. Yeah. Like going to the bathroom. I mean, it's like it just feels great. It sounds great. It's perfect. Just done. No flubs. No Got it. Deal. Thank you. And that's one of the remarkable things about rock and pop music is like something that takes you 20 minutes is then canonized for life and becomes the life force of millions of people throughout the world. Yeah. And you can hear you, you hear the story of so many tongs, songs, pop songs that are number one hits that people love and put in their weddings and right. and cherish their entire lives that yeah. were pretty much put down in a half an hour. <laughs> So nuts. It's amazing. And it couldn't have been done, you know, without recorded music. Like, it needed to have been put on tape. Like, they're not going to write a chart for that and send it to a symphony to perform. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. It is really the product of recorded music yeah. and performers knowing how to use that medium and just doing it. Um, and I love this song. I love this song. You know, I think of uh, Let It Be as this just tour de force of these people who have created, you know, these four remarkable writers yeah. that um, know each other so well. And this feels like that level of, uh, of just expertise in oh. practice. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, they could do it in their sleep. They could do it high. They could do it yeah. exhausted. They could do it in oppressive heat and, Darkness and you know, like, and it's a total blast. Yeah, beautiful. Turn on the run. This is my other Fleetwood track. Um, I really do feel like this is also very reflective of the core of their world at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and and it was really interesting to hear this in the context of the actual space, which I hadn't realized. Um, yeah, but I do feel like this is another track that might not have made it if it wasn't a double album. Right. Exactly. Again, I'm glad it is. I'm glad it's there. But you know, it's. I was a never one to lesser. Yeah, I was never one to skip a track on a vinyl record, but this is one I would always just like. All right, there's better stuff after this. Right. Right. <laughs> right. It's getting you through. Yeah. It's getting you through, and it works. <laughs> it works. It's fine. It's a double album, and it's big and sprawling, and so there's you're not not every single one is going to hit you. Right. But whoa. Which I feel similarly about Ventilator Blues. Oh my God. It's a cute little thing. This is a fucking monster track in my mind. Oh, really? I oh, think wow. this song is a total demon. Tell me. I just think it feels amazing. Uh, it's certainly <laughs> evocative. Yeah, I mean, it, it takes <clears throat> you right there. Ugh. But it, it drags a little for me, does it not? I just think it rocks. All I right. love it. it All right. It's a. It is certainly raunchy. It's raunchy. I love that about it. it it's sprawling. Yeah. It just flows and has this beautiful slow groove that I just, God, it feels great. And it's great uh, saxophone. No matter it's great where harmonica. you 
on. Yeah, that B section is so cool. You need something else in there to keep it from just being an, a stomp. I mean, that's a style of blues where you're just playing yes. the same chord through the whole song. All, it feels almost like a New Orleans funeral procession. Totally. Yeah. And it's, a, yeah, an ode to the sweaty humid basement right. <laughs> their, their situation they're just talking about what's happening yeah, like this sucks it's they're hot in here <laughs> but god i just think it rocks as uh, another example of the rolling stones being the rolling stones and this being the quintessential example of that this yeah i'd like to listen to this with the with everything you described about you know uh charlie and keith and everything oh, in mind just, it feels great yeah. and it's a later set song you're not going to put this in the first side of the first album right right this is deep in it where you're just you're not thinking quite as clearly anymore. You're more feeling. You're sort of settled into lizard brain a little bit more. You know, like a long concert that you go to. Yes. But by the 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 last third of it, yeah. You want the epic things. You right. want the the um the sort of more abstract stuff. Yeah. It's like I don't know. I think of Court and Spark. It's like down to you. you yes. Know, but you you need to build up to some things. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is one that couldn't have come earlier. But at this point, I'm ready to be. I'm not as interested in tight construction as I am in just like make me feel, make me well, keep certainly, me in, in yeah. the zone. You know, I'm certainly takes you there, and yeah. the horns at the end really do up the stakes. They they really come in and and uh, legitimize the song a little bit from my perspective. So yeah, I buy that for sure. Yeah, maybe down to you is not the right example because that is very carefully constructed. But again, I just think of a, any show where. I think about that in terms of constructing set lists. Like, there's some songs you put in the beginning because yeah. they're a good accessible and they're an introduction, and then by the you just want to rock when yes. you're like late in it. You just want to keep that, suspend that feeling, and sustain that feeling. Yeah, in creating a, a an improv show, you want to early in the show you want to sort of demonstrate skills. Yes, and then there are certain parts later in the show where you want to just sort of flex those skills. Stretch it and out. And they, they don't need to be introduced because they've already been established, and so they're they're expected, Perfect. and you can stretch them a little bit and just ride them a little bit. And this Got is it. probably a good example of that. Which, yeah. which then segues into another one of those, Just Want to See His Face. Oh, my God. Which I feel like that's a... It's like one of the great segues on in albums, period. <laughs> yeah, this was a real uh, trusty uh, song in my mix-making days. Oh, yeah. This really helped me with, you know, the end of a side or... But did uh, you ever put it on a side A? Uh, maybe at the end of side A. Okay. Maybe just to like... But again, fill it's a segue. A little space, yeah. yeah. You have a minute and a half left on... Right, right, right. Yeah. Uh when we talk about, I've mentioned many times, Town Called Malice, the songs that are, you know, sound impossible to have captured in a space, this feels otherworldly yeah. to me. Um, and, and, and in much the same way as um, Shake Your Hips uh, gives the album a little bit of bona fides that some of the other songs don't. Stretches the album in a different direction and really makes you feel like, oh, man, like... They can pivot in whichever direction they want, and, and there's still more surprises to come with regard to that from a gospel perspective. Oh, yeah. But this hints at that very nicely. Oh. Um, and then an incredibly cutting lyric. Don't want to hear her talk about Jesus. I this just want to see his face. very useful to a religiously skeptical young yeah. man <laughs> who first met it. Lyric. Yeah. And you think it's this sort of like gospel rave up, and then all of a sudden you're like, show me. Yeah, there's something about that. It's powerful keyboards in this. Yes, 
Um, and again, on the spot. Right. On the spot. Right. Play me something gospel. Yeah. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah. And they just sort of picked it up and went with it, and they pieced it together in L.A. Yeah. Amazing. Gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous yeah. song. Take a moment to listen to that yeah, one. Yeah, I mean, you, it could only have it. been invented in a French basement. Out of, you know, like, I don't know, who knows. And, and the backing Two vocals in the morning. on this number <sighs> are astonishing. Yeah. Some of the best, I think, moments in the entire album are the... Yeah, are the shifts that those backing vocals, you know, there's like an inversion of the melody at one point yeah. uh, in in the chorus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just think that is a brilliant, beautiful, and and to me it speaks to like classical music almost. Right. Because it's the development of a theme. It's yes. the establishment and then development of a theme. I mean, it's really tremendous. Yeah. It's sort of, it's an, <laughs> it's a str- a strident blues band flexing gospel kind of influence over classical structure. Yep. I mean, and you talk about influences and them being like prototypes or predecessors. Uh, you know, one of my all-time favorites is Tom Waits. Mm. And, you know, this is his entire career is this song. Yeah. <laughs> it starts here. Yeah. This is like his genesis. Is that right? This tune. I mean, and he, he, he I mean, I can hear that, but is his that like an favorite actual... Rolling Stone song. Okay, I mean, wow. And like one of his favorite songs. Wow. But you can hear everything that he was and became. I feel like would not have existed without yeah. this crazy That's random. That's all right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Even using like sort of a yeah. you know an effect, effect on his vocal, yeah. and then the the atmospheric nature yep. of it. But yeah, with that really strong feel, like it has a great the groove. Keys. It's not just sort of this flaccid right. um, environment thing. It's got right. a pulse to it. It really has a strong. pulse. This song is very much alive. Yeah, yeah. Ugh. I love it. And again, yeah, like Shake Your Hips is is a little ster- not sterile. I don't mean it that much, but it is a little clinical in yeah, its approach up. to music. Yeah, you know, yeah. It's but this is an this is a heartbeat sh- of a song. It's really loose. Yeah, I was playing it, blasting it actually when I drove up to the house. Because it, yeah, this is just puts you there. Yeah, very special. Um, just not long enough, in my opinion. Ah, uh, yeah, I know. It probably but was 40 But do you minutes need it longer. any longer than that, No, really? no, That's I don't think things. you do, but it definitely feels like it was much longer, yeah. and I kind of would love to hear. Uh, this is probably the... P- they probably gave us the perfect part that... You know, we I want really the director's cut, though. Yeah. I'd listen. But it's like the Leave I don't care more how long the song you know. really was. I, I, would, I would listen to I it. I want to hear long. the conversation before it. Yeah. I want to hear them saying, like, yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. I want to hear them walking in the room. <laughs> order lunch I don't know if that'll happen <laughs> uh, Let It Loose again another song that could be any band's greatest achievement yeah. of their careers yeah. no matter how many decades they spent together Yes, this could be their greatest song um, and again it's not one of the ones that like jumps out at me hardly registers yeah uh, but it's got and it's for yeah it I love the way it starts though and I love the way it builds this is one of the most dynamic songs in terms of like, you know, dropping the needle at the beginning and the end. Yep. In terms of being a construction. It's another back porch song to me, similar to uh, how I was talking about. Um, oh, God, it escaped me now. <laughs> Whichever the other. <laughs> you know, I can't help but feel like at some point we have to talk about Liz Fair, right? And I don't know why I came up yeah. right now. But it did because this this one, Let It Loose, I remember reading some interview with her where she was like, oh, that's just the dude, you know, like trying to get the girl to fuck one more time. Right. And, you know, that was <laughs> a lyric that she wanted to have a particular response to. So do you, 
Is, is this the right time for that sure. digression? Yeah, I didn't realize. I didn't want to hold it till the till the end. No, that's it's um, a great point. We haven't brought it up yet. So, yeah. Liz Fair, um, her debut album uh, was allegedly, in in some respects, but you're quoting an actual interview. I didn't find any actual okay. evidence of this. So I'm I will glad post. to hear it. It's she has a whole thing about it. Yeah. I knew that she had claimed in interviews, but I, I didn't find the original. Well, here's the thing. So, Exile and Guyville, yeah. her hit from that was Never Said, which is uh, Never Said yeah. Nothing, yeah. which is a, you know, it's a pretty good song. At the time, I, I was like, oh, yeah, it's in the never mix. Said um, I mean, I've grown to love her since then, but sure. at the time, I didn't think much of it. Yeah. But it's at track five where Tumbling Dice was, uh-huh. uh, which she decided to put it there because it was the most radio friendly, the similar to uh, Tumbling Dice. Dice. But she wanted to write an album. And, you know, she was, this, according to an interview with her, uh, her boyfriend at the time pulled out, you know, she, she wanted to write an album, didn't know how, was looking for a template. Mm. And he pulled out Exile on Main Street, and she's like, oh, yeah, was this popular? Like, was this good? And he's like, yeah, yeah. Oh, man. And then, That's awesome. You know, but he's like, but Liz, it's a double album. You can't do that. And she's like, but watch me. Yeah. And then, so every song is like a response to one of the songs on there. And, and I will... She she goes into detail. Wow. But some of them she hears what Mick is singing about and she writes the song like was it six six foot one inch. Yes. She's like, I'm the night before that. Ah. <laughs> and then and then so this song reminded me, shoot, um, because uh, 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 oh yeah, let it loose. Yeah. What song is it? I think it's um, girls, girls, girls. Let me just check that mix that I made earlier. Yeah, that was handy. Um, um, I will, I'll post the link to this. Yeah, that was I, I very made nice. A, I made a playlist of uh, Exile on Main Street and and then Exile on Guy, Guyville, uh, Exile in Guyville, um, side to side. So Rocks Off plays and then Six Foot One. Yeah. Rip jo- Rip this joint plays and then Help Me Mary. Yep. Or Let It Loose is Flower. Oh is yes. Is the response Flower. Which I can't pull up in my head right now. Because, well, basically, her, her thing with that was that, like, Let It Loose is about, like, just trying to get this girl to fuck. Yeah. And she wrote Flower to be the response to, like, this is what's inside her mm. that you're not thinking about mm-hmm. because you're just thinking about the surface. Yeah. And so that was what brought the Liz Fair thing right away because it, that, nice. that, that was one of the more powerful associations. Uh, and, and so when you listen to Exile and Guyville, which you should. Yes. Um a lot of the associations with Exile on Main Street are, are thematic, or her reacting to what she's hearing Mick sing right. about. Uh, all, all the while, at the same time, the band is very nerdily into the Rolling Stones, and are, she, she gives them the credit for like giving it a Stones feel. Totally. Um, but I just want to be clear, because yeah. you're saying that... So my understanding was that it was song by song, structurally built to be similar. And I had... Originally thought that Liz Fair's songs were all direct responses to the corresponding song on Exile on Main Street. But you're saying that Six no, Foot One is the response to Let It Loose, which sorry, no, Six Foot One is the res- response to Rocks Off. I got it. Thank you. Okay. Flower is the response to Let It Loose. Okay, so it is. So so she does song say, by song. Your playlist is perfect. Okay, good. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I'm most concerned. You're like, about. holy shit. <laughs> No, I just how do I build sure this I thing back? No, no, I wasn't sure. I thought when I was listening to it today, when I listened to this playlist, uh, I took a walk around the common today, listening to these songs back and forth, and I, 
you know, trying to build these bridges between the two. And sometimes it's easy, and sometimes it's easy musically, and sometimes it's easy lyrically. And yeah, yeah. Sometimes it's pretty hard to, yeah. to, to draw a clear connection. And I think maybe after this point is where it really starts to fray yes. from, uh, from, from those relationships. I never thought, I mean, when I first heard that years ago, I listened to Guyville again, and I was like, I don't know, whatever. Right. I just, you know, right, it, it right. sounded like one of those things that a young, brash musician would say in order to kind of yeah. create that association and sort of lift oneself up based on the association. Right. Um, so I didn't think that much of it as opposed to a bold, boastful statement. Yeah. Because, I mean, Liz Fair is a little bit like that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And I love that about her. Absolutely. Um, and so I just felt like this is just her, like, oh, yeah. yeah. And, but then later I did notice that it's 18 songs and, and right. Exile on Main Street. And there's some uh, musically, I mean, some yeah. of the relationships musically in the first 10 songs sort of are, I, I think they really sound nice. I think they're really nice departures on her part from the base material of the song that's related to. Right. Okay. Um, especially in a couple of, of instances. But yeah. but of course th- it's something to explore if you're exploring this album. Totally. Yeah. And having heard let it you know, having read that interview with her, I listened to Let It Loose and I feel different about it. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I'm now sort totally. of armed with her point of view on it and how it's like slightly gross. Yes. <laughs> uh and that segues into But I do feel like this is a, a yeah. hangover helper of a song. <laughs> Um, and again, the horns uh, kind of cap it. Oh, it's wonderful, though. Yeah. It's still beautiful. It's beautiful. I love the build. All Down the Line feels to me line. like your third wind. Like, all of a sudden, yes, you're like, let's squeeze one more fun thing out of this night, guy. Like, you're, you're kind of winding down. Yeah. And you're just like, no, no. <laughs> we're going to go... One more time, one, we're one gonna more place. We're we're gonna try one more time. Yeah, uh, and and not that it's not effective at all. I mean, it's a great, really, really fun song. Um, but yeah, I think by that, I mean, and frankly, by this point in the record, I'm pretty winded. Yes, I want to just be put to bed. Yes, <laughs> yeah, I'm looking for either a a nice handoff. Yeah, to the album being done, or a climax. And right. I don't think either of those those things really quite come no this is a sustainer yeah yeah just no, to certainly keep... not in this song but i don't think they ever come <gasps> oh okay i don't think you are at the end of this album i don't think you are gently laid down to bed and i don't think you are left with uh bonzo's montreux or, or you know some kind of absolute yeah, like, holy shit moment right yeah. you're not it's there's no mic drop <laughs> on this album and and it's not a gentle fade yeah you're right um it should have ended with shine a light That's I, what think I think so too yeah, yeah absolutely soul survivor is eh. It's Soul fine. Survivor is a weird way to end this. It this is. Album. Yeah. Shine a Light is the perfect it, closer. I, I, did I write that Soul Survivor's. I mean, I wrote not the right song to finish the album on. More filler for me. Yeah. That's all I have on, on Soul Survivor. Yeah. Maybe float it earlier or just leave it off. I mean, you got to fill the, the grooves, right? Uh, it's a vinyl, so they have to fill it for time. Stop Breaking Down. Uh, I, I felt similarly that it was kind of a little last throw, death throw <laughs> of the album. Um, one w- I wrote here, one would think that any album recorded under the circumstances this one was would produce stuff like this, like Stop Breaking Down, at the very best. Yeah. That you would expect to get out of those circumstances. That would be like, oh, man, this, this is great. But... At this point in the record... It's one of the worst on the record. And I kind of forget it's there until yeah. it plays again. Oh, right, Stop yeah, Breaking yeah. Down. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, with fresh ears, play this album on shuffle. Yeah. And this one comes up in the top in the first three, 
And I think that you will experience it differently. Interesting. Because I think it's really that's good. One, that's probably the one way I've not listened to this record. Yeah. Because, I, because it means so much to me as a space in, and a tour and a story. Yeah. And yeah. Right. But that's a good idea. But where you are, where are you in this point in the story? Like you're ready for bed. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, this is the the one extra ending that the. I think this song has a lot of interesting parts to it. Right. Yeah, it's a bit of a sleeper, and I kind of forget about it. I'll, uh, that'll be interesting. Yeah. To just pick up with this song yeah. or get it top three. Yeah. And then shine a light, right? Yeah, I mean, shine a light erases any any fatigue that you may have built up over the previous two songs uh, is absolutely gone with Shine a Light, which again could be any band's Best. greatest song ever. Yeah. And they and they would have every reason to be proud. They're just astounding. Yeah. Their songwriting ability. And uh, Billy Preston on piano and organ. Oh, so I didn't realize. Finished uh, in LA. But wow, you don't even need it because like just them, the, the core band sounds great. It's a great build. I love another incredible harmony vocal. Yeah. Uh, like full gospel. Yep. And it occurs to me just now, like, well, maybe they didn't want to end with Shine a Shine Light because they already ended Beggar's Banquet with Salt of the Earth, mm. which is sort of in the same vein, the sort of like slow gospel ballad kind of thing that they do. Yeah. Do you remember Salt of the Earth? I don't. Let's drink to the hardworking people. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so it's a little bit in the same vein. Some I don't know, whatever. I'm not in their heads, but uh, I, I maybe I want the album ten with Shine a Light. That's I do too. Perfect. And then I wanted it. I've wanted it for years to be that way. Uh, and then in the research for this album, I found out that this is about Brian Jones. Yeah. Which, you know, his death. Uh, there's one of their older images, one of their older posters, where they're all in these like dark coats and they're like huddled in a doorway, and sure, they're in the lower left, I think, of the frame of the you know kind of yeah. not framed classically. I think I know the shot. Yeah, and um, regardless, one the first posters I had of the Rolling Stones, Brian Jones was in, and I his death and the group becoming what it became without him, that whole relationship was really something that just took a lot for me to sort of process through uh and as well the early my early and i think misinformed version of the story which is that he was found in a pool after a party that they were all at that they were like oh he's fine and he died in the pool that way and and so and i was wrong about i i think i was wrong about that. yeah somehow i had picked up that as the story and so um and and you know, it's not entirely untrue that the Stones left him behind. Um, not quite so. <laughs> sort of by necessity, though, because right. he was fucking tuned out. Yes, indeed. Um, but, but his place is also party central. Right. So I think there's a lot of blame to go around, or at least like guilt to go around, because right. everybody was around. Right, and I think, I totally agree, but my young self just didn't understand life that way, and just yeah. could not sort of sort out... I, I was sober for uh, until co- way into college, and so I didn't really understand the kind of influence that things like that could have. And it, it just to me was like, oh, this is so weird that this guy who like started the band and was such the musical motor of the band when it began was sort of eclipsed and then just excised and then died, uh, and they continued on as that band. That was just very weird for me to, oh. to work through huh. uh, as a young kid. And 
now to find out that Shine a Light was just this beautiful homage that feels like this, um, you know, uh, uh, what's the leaf that you offered? Olive Branch. Yeah. Uh, offered to sort of his memory. Um, well, they just loved him. I mean, I, yeah, I don't think that they were, he, he was fucked up. It's this perfect, it's like shine on you crazy diamond. I was just going to say that. Yeah, it's this beautiful expression of love, of love and loss. For a bandmate and love and loss. Right. Yeah. And, and, and loss, to find a way to, ce- I don't mean to say celebrate loss, but to, to, to be able to view this person. Celebrate the life. Right. In of their friend in the in the grandeur of themselves uh, rather than the way that they were lost is something that is a challenge for me yeah uh, personally in some ways and um, dear loved ones that are going through that and and um, yeah it's a really optimistic uh, and and aspirational aspirational expression of love amidst loss. And I- impossible in a realm other than music, I think. Yes. It could really only come across that way. And only by special people. Yeah. Like the Rolling Stones, or in the case of Pink Floyd with Shine On Your Crazy right. Diamond. Right. It is exactly. really a similar Very similar. Vein. Yeah. Our friend with love and loss. Yeah. And, yeah. I, d- and I don't get why it couldn't end on that. I don't, I don't get why um, the greatest rock and roll band <laughs> in the world... Wanted to stick one couldn't more. Couldn't end their seminal greatest album, which admittedly does not have any of their greatest hits. Which is so interesting. But still, to me, to me, I'll I'll defend it as their greatest achievement. Yeah. Um, couldn't end with an absolutely aspirational homage to the original motor of the group. See, they just do. Yeah, they end side three with "I just want to see his face," which is a really weird way to end a side. Then you get "Let It Loose" starting out side four, and then you sh- and with "Shine a Light," and you just drop "Soul Survivor" off the end. You don't need "Soul Survivor" in there. And again, maybe this is another one where I feel like I need to go back and like arbitrarily shuffle this record and start with "Soul Survivor" or put it in the top few. Look, it's and a, see how it holds up. It's a fine song. I mean, and they played it live and yep, stuff. Like yep. it's there in their set a bunch of times. Gonna be the death of me is certainly an expression that <laughs> needs to be related <laughs> to the, the circumstances that they were under at the of time. The greatest rock and roll band, of right? All time. And um, yeah, but it is, uh, yeah. It's I. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if it belongs on the album. I don't know. I hate to say it's not a perfect album. It's not a perfect album. But it's not, and that may be one of the ways. It's a big, beautiful, sprawling mess. Unlike anything else. Yeah. Except Exile and Guyville, I guess. (laughs) Certainly like this episode, right? (laughs) Well, we hope you will uh, take some time. Uh, I know I'm going to shuffle it next time I listen to it. Maybe you guys will, too. Yeah. Um, Thank you if you've been hanging in this long. Yeah, thank you very much. It's it's great to be able to celebrate these records and and have other people appreciate it and and participate and and listen to the record and listen along and the part that's missing is your thoughts if you have any that you want to share like right I, I feel this like is this the is the end of uh, uh the end of season 1 we've yeah. done 10 records and we're going to uh line up 10 more wow. for season 2. We did it. <coughs> we, we made sure it. We did. Uh, this was our commitment. Yeah, and we we saw it through. Yeah, and uh, I think we're gonna yeah re- 
re-up, right? Yeah, absolutely. I'm <laughs> signing on. All right. Where do I sign? Yeah, let's do Where's it. Where's the bus? <laughs> um, for season two, we're going to be doing uh, a different kind. We, we've decided for, consec- for subsequent seasons, we're going to sort of identify different types of records, and we're going to start season two off uh, for the for the progression with live albums. So season two will be 10 live records. All live. We have a, a nice collection of them uh, already that we're going to choose the first couple of uh, episodes from. But we'd like to hear from you guys. If you have uh, favorite live albums, um, yeah. just give us a call, tweet at us, uh, throw it up on Facebook. 937P-TIM, leave a voicemail. Um, or yeah, tweet it, tweet it at us, send some links. Yep. Um, and uh, I feel like we have to be uh, broad in our definition of live album. I've already asked uh, one friend, Keith, you know, what are his favorite live albums? And he's like, so is this live all done at one night? Mm. Is this one performance? Right. Is this... W- w- and, I, and I feel like... Uh, feel free to be broad. Yeah. Um, I think as long as it's, it's a like a, I don't know, released um, compilation of live performances that are of, like, you know, album length. Right. It would be tough for us. I think released is key. I, it would be tough for us to just deal with bootlegs. Um, yes. I think. And so, in the spirit of this being participatory, yes. it should be widely available. Right. That's, I think, exactly what I'm getting at. Uh, and in a sort of album format. And yeah. it can be from any decade. And I really hope that we expand our decade range. Right. Um, and a wide range of artists and genres and yeah. whatever you've got. All of it. We'd love to hear it uh, so, so it, that we can yeah. potentially include it in season two. Overdubs or not, let, let, let's talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not from all the same show or performance or night, like whatever. Like whatever. A, a band bringing it on stage in front of an audience. Yeah. We'd yeah. love to hear what you've got to say. 937 yes. Tim at Record Time Pod or Facebook.com slash. Record time podcast. Yeah, and we might do like a couple singles as a teaser. Yeah, I think it might be fun to do one. You know, that maybe isn't a live album that we do, but a particular choice live track. Yeah, sure. uh, As a teaser for that, I've got a couple Um, of ideas. All right. Yeah. Good. Um, but we'll be back with that. Um, so yeah, we look forward to your thoughts and to leave you guys to celebrate the end of the season with the celebration that this record is. Uh, a ridiculously over-the-top cover uh, of Love and Cup with Dave DeSimone, uh, drummer of the Rockmores, on drums. Um, I had such a joy. This is the first time I ever mic'd my piano. Ooh. Um, so that, yeah, we went, we went for it. <laughs> we hope, we hope you like it. it. Yeah. Uh, thanks for hanging in with us for Record Time. I'm Tim. Pete. Have a great summer. More soon.
Hanya ikan dan